Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Then he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now that I know you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Amen. Thank you. Powerful story. Uh, story, if you've been in church for a while, you may be familiar with. Um, I hope to unpack some of that for you. Uh, good morning, church. I'm excited to be here with you, and I hope you have enjoyed walking through this uh, series about heroes being just like us. And this entire series was kind of birthed out of a passage of scripture in the book of James, where James, the brother of Jesus, makes this incredibly audacious statement. And he says that Elijah was a man just like us. James chapter five. He says, Elijah was a man just like us. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know I've kind of had some fun with that because Elijah was basically a superhero in this culture. Young Jewish boys would have grown up wearing Elijah pajamas, the way that we wear Superman pajamas, guys, because they love the story and the narrative of Elijah. Elijah was amazing. Elijah was a guy, when he prayed, it literally stopped raining. How many want that superpower? Come on, somebody, right? It stopped raining. He prayed again and it rained again. He asked God to show by fire his power and fire, fire, fire came down from heaven when he prayed. So James, the brother of Jesus, the half brother of Jesus, grew up in a house around Jesus, knew Jesus. Did we cover the fact that he was closely connected with Jesus? Writes this audacious statement and he says, listen, the guys that you look at in the scriptures, the, the people, they were just guys. They were just people just like us, but they did something heroic. So we've been mining from some different stories, some of the heroic things that God did and does through people and how they were just like us and how they are relatable just like us. And uh, I got to tell you, 
Here's one of those just heroic moments. And if you were here last week, hopefully you enjoyed Pastor Kelly shared. And uh, last week was a weird convergence of events. Um, one of our, our founding kind of saints of our church uh, had passed away and there was a big funeral service on, on, on Saturday. And then there was church on Sunday and I was uh, out of state most of the week. And there was this weird just convergence and Pastor Kelly was available to, to jump in and to preach. But normally when, when anyone else has the microphone, I micromanage because that's just my personality all of this stuff, right? But I trust Kelly. I've known him for years and years and years. And I said, Kelly, just preach what God puts on your heart and we'll get the stuff together. I'm in Atlanta, so I can't micromanage you. So let's make this work. Kelly showed up. I'm just telling you, this is how cool the Holy Spirit is. Kelly showed up. He recaps the story of Moses. He recaps the story of David and Goliath. And then he preached about Paul overcoming his past. You know, I write a year out, right? Last week was supposed to be about Paul overcoming his past, and the title of the message was going to be Kryptonite, and I was going to talk about how sometimes the enemy tries to get you to believe that you can't go into your future because of your past. I didn't prep Kelly at all, and he preached that message. It was amazing. And so I'm just telling you, God is moving through the word, and it's cool when we get together, and it's exciting to be in these environments. And today, we are talking about one of my favorite stories, but it's a, uh, a challenging story. I, I love it because it's a great story and I have challenge with it because I don't know that I can do what the scripture says Abraham does. But we've been in this series talking about how heroes are just like us. And, and one of the tensions that we've had is that it's hard to define what a hero is anymore. And we've talked about how the dictionary will call a hero uh, a person who's noted for courageous acts of nobility or character. And we're like, yes. And then the next sentence is, it's also a sandwich. So how do we define hero and what is heroic anymore? And, and uh, we throw around the term hero like so loosely. If you retweet someone, is that heroic? I don't know, but sometimes we treat that as heroic. When we do just our basic responsibilities, someone says, well, that's heroic. And we're like, I'm not sure. Is that heroic? We've lowered the bar and moved the bar for heroic so many times that it's hard to recognize a hero when we see one. And so what do these heroes of the faith do that God identifies and pulls out and recognizes as things that are heroic? One of the ways we define it is a hero sees what everyone else sees but does what nobody else does. And, and we've been talking about how they have seen things and now we are following these incredible heroes of the faith and of scripture. And today we're gonna talk about Abraham and sacrifice. Sacrifice is not my favorite thing to talk about, guys. It's just not. I've realized something about myself as we've been preparing for this week. I've realized I kind of like my stuff. I work hard for my stuff and pay for it and feel like I earn it. And so when I start talking about sacrifice, my immediate gut reaction is just a man as a human is, ah, this is not my favorite topic to talk about. And then I start thinking, I also like kind of feeling in control of my life. And sometimes when we think about sacrifice, we think about kind of trusting God for the direction of our lives. And that's great and all, but, you know, I got this. Let me figure this out. Now, when I'm in crisis, sacrifice doesn't seem like that big of a deal because I got no other options. But when I got options, sacrifice is not always the most comfortable conversation to have. And so if today, you know, you haven't been to church for a while and, and you kind of got drug in, I'm so glad you're here. We're going to talk about something that's all uncomfortable. I'll give you some tools that I think will be really helpful. Even if you don't agree with everything we say, I think I'll give you some principles that will be really helpful. But if you've been coming to church for a while, I think today may be one of those days that mm, makes, hopefully you leave at least as uncomfortable as I've been all week long. So you're welcome. 
<laughs> it's therapeutic for me to make you as uncomfortable as I've been with all this. So that's kind of how this goes. But I don't always want to listen to God. I just don't. Sometimes there's a pain threshold that I want to experience before I really trust God on things. And it's just true. I was even thinking, you know, it was for me, it felt like a tremendous sacrifice leaving Oregon and moving up here. I mean, I like all you guys now, but you know, a couple years ago, I liked everywhere thing I had it the way I had it. And it was a hard sacrifice to think about, man, moving and, and starting life and, and ministry again in a community where I don't know anybody. I thought, man, it's just too much sacrifice, God. And so God knocks on the door and says, hey, will you listen? And I'm like, mm, not so much. And God knocks on the door again and says, hey, will you listen? And I'm like, mm, I hear you, but no, 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 no. I'm busy. I'm busy doing the last thing I heard. Can you just chill out? And God, I said, all right, God, what are we doing here? It's hard to sacrifice sometimes. And oftentimes, sacrifice is defined when you give up something that's good, come on now, to gain something or for something that is considered higher or having a better claim. Sacrifice is tough. I think about... For over 15 years, I did student ministries with junior hires and high schools, high schoolers. And so often you meet with students and they have this just tremendous call on their life and the tremendous direction that God's birthed into their life. And then they start hitting that season when they have options for the first time in their life. And the sacrifice it feels like to say no to anything that you might be able to have. And watching so many students with a destiny in their life be unwilling to give up good things for greater things. It's tense. It's tense. It's hard when, your life want, when you want your life to go in a specific direction, but it's not easy to get there. It might cost you something to get there. You know, about a year ago, I, I preached a sermon about the principle of a path, which is a, um, a, a Andy Stanley kind of uh, painted that picture. But essentially, it is you end up the direction you're going. Remember, we talked about the Fife life. Some of you were here for that. If you live in Fife, I'm sorry. Don't go back and listen to that because I didn't know anything about Fife. I was pretty new. I just assumed it was not as good as Seattle. Am I still right? Okay. <laughs> Some of you don't know what I'm talking about at all. I, I just assumed that if you're trying to get to Seattle and you ended up in Fife, you might be disappointed. Is that, is that a thing still? Okay. All right. I'm safe. <laughs> I'm not knocking Fife. It's just not, you know, if we were trying to get to Seattle, that wouldn't be the win. But the principle of the path looks a little something like this. It does, it's direction, not desire, that determines your destination. And here's a simple truth. If you leave here, you get on 512 and you hit the I-5 interchange and you are called, destined, planning on going to Seattle, but you take I-5 South, you will not get to Seattle. You will not. No matter how much desire you have, your direction determines your destination. You can get on I-5 South and go, all right, I really want to go to Seattle. Guess what? You are not going to Seattle. You can get on I-5 South and just say, all right, honey, we're going to start praying. I'm going to lock it in cruise control. At what's the 65, 70, whatever it is, 85. I don't know who you are. I'm not judging. You lock it in a cruise control and you're cruising South on I-5. You, I actually looked at a map. You will not. It does not go all the way around. You cannot get on I-5 South and eventually get there. 
I joked, if you're a flat earther, then you know that doesn't make any sense to you. But for the rest of you, you know what I'm talking about. You will not get to Seattle if you get on I-5 South, no matter how much want to. You gotta turn your car around and go that other direction. You see, direction, not desire, will determine your destination. And oftentimes, when it comes to our future and where we're headed, there's a lot of sacrifice that it takes to keep going the direction God called us to go. And oftentimes, it's easier. Man, there's traffic going this way. Let's just whoop, turn around. There's less resistance here, and we're still moving but it's not taking us to where God's called us to be. So this morning, we're gonna deal with this simple tension. What if God has something better for my life than what I have right now, but I might have to let something go to get there? I might have to push through a tension. I might have to give something up. As I began exploring this, I was asking myself questions like, well, what, what was God really want? And... I mean, this is a hard story. I, we, that's why I read it before, uh, before we got up here, because this is a hard story. And why would a good God even ask me to give that up? Why would God even want me to give that up? And listen, I think before we go any further, we might have to answer just this basic question. What is the most important thing in your life? What's number one on your list? When you start thinking about the most important thing, not just the unimportant thing, not what's the blob of top importance. When you sit down to write your list, it's worth the price of admission for some of you. If you get this question answered this morning, then maybe this will solve some other tensions that you're wrestling with. But what's the most important thing? What sits up on the top? It's a good question. We're gonna try to answer that a little bit today, but... Before we do, let's dive into our story. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Genesis chapter 22, and I'll be there with you. And Genesis is this incredible narrative of stories. It starts with the story of creation and Adam and his family, and, and, uh, and it just is this entire story of God interacting with people. And we meet around Genesis 12 or so, Abraham, and uh, Abram's his name at that point. And we hear this incredible story. And if you're not aware of this, we believe Genesis was most likely written by Moses. Moses is the most likely author. Uh, oral tradition and historical tradition says Moses is the one that put this together uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He just wrote this down so we would have uh, kind of this, this narrative. And Moses is an incredible storyteller. You get so many good pieces of information in here. And the Holy Spirit preserves so many things that it's very interesting and exciting and fascinating. If you haven't read Genesis and you think the Bible's boring, then it's because you haven't read Genesis. There's so many cool things in there. And so, so we get this interaction with this man named Abraham. Abram, and his name gets changed. And he's about 75 years old when God shows up and says, I need you to leave everything you've known and set off to a land that you don't know. Just trust me, it's gonna be awesome when you get there. Some of you hate this message already. Some of you will not get in the car without a clear destination, without Siri mapping it out, without ways telling you where the accidents are, without a clear plan of attack and the measure of time it should take you to get there basically locked in. Some of you have already lost it, you're too tense. I'm just telling you, sometimes God calls us to start moving before we know the landing zone with just the promise that he's with us on the journey and the destination is better than where we're at. We should trust him. So 
Abraham packs up his family, gets on the road, and you know lots of the story. So many interactions, Sodom and Gomorrah, his uh, nephew Lot and tension and things that happen. He ends up uh, in Egypt, and, and one, thing we, one thing we know as an absolute fact of the story is his wife is smoking hot, because twice, twice he lies and says that it's not his wife in order to, because he's nervous that someone will just kill him and take his wife. So it's him and Sarah, and they're on this journey, and, and as part of the promise, God tells him, you're going to be the father of a nation, of many nations. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and he's 75 years old. He's got no kids. For the next 25 years of his story through Genesis 12 and 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, all the way through, we see all of these incredible faith moments and failure moments and trusting God moments. I mean, here's the kind of faith he has. He's 75 and God says, your outward sign that you trust me is gonna be circumcision. Gentlemen, I want you to recognize for just a moment, this is self-circumcision. At 75, shaky hands. I'm just saying, this is a hard ask. This is a difficult ask. And he's trusting God on big things, big things. And God says, you're gonna be the father of many nations, but there's no kids. And somewhere along the line, after years of no kids and traveling and trying to figure things out, Abraham gets a little frustrated and you guys know the story. He's not having kids. And he says, well, there's another way that we can have kids. Since this isn't working with me and my wife, I'll add another wife to the equation. And you can give me the handmaiden or our servant. And she can have a kid. And we'll try to figure out a way to do this thing that God's promised us in our own strength and not in God's strength. Now, listen, this isn't the message, but this is just, we got we to gotta explore this for a second. Can I just say something? to especially our church people, but to everybody. We have lost the ability to wait. We don't know how to wait. Our culture does not know a thing about waiting. If you think it does, then go through the drive-through and when you get there, have them tell you, your food's not ready, can you pull forward? And then park and watch three or four cars get their food and see how quickly your temperature rises. Come on now. Because we don't know how to wait anymore. I need my nuggets. That's a story. You'll tell that story to your friends. That's a bad day when that happens to you, right? Our culture knows nothing about waiting anymore. We don't understand the concept and the principle of waiting. And because of that, God who's in heaven, when he breathes a plan and a destiny into our lives and it takes longer than we think it should, we try to do this. We try to figure out a way to make it work because we believe God's called us to do it. So we gotta just make it happen. It's tough. Can we peel some layers back there? Can I tell you that I've known many church folks, God's put something in their heart and the timing of it didn't seem to match the timing they wanted. So they left their church and their family and the people God's called them to and went somewhere else to just try to make it happen. Because they thought maybe in this environment I can push through and, and I know God called me here, but I'm just gonna make it happen. Is that a little too close? Okay, I'll back up. How about I know many families and things weren't going the way they thought it should go. And one of those 
two principles said, there's another way to do this. Since it's not happening this way, I'm going to leave this family and make a new family and try to get all the things that, all right, maybe that's too close. Let me back up. I know many people in their careers, that's safer, many people in their careers and they thought, okay, God's called me here and this is what I'm supposed to do and I know there's a destiny. It's not happening in the timing that I want it to happen. So I'm going to rip that from God's hand. I'm going to make it happen now. And here's the thing. Just like Ishmael, oftentimes there's a facsimile, a copy of the thing that God had for you. But it's not the thing God had for you. You were able to produce it in your own strength, but it wasn't the promise that God had put into your heart and into your life because it wasn't the timing for that promise. And now you've got a version of that promise that your hearts and hope is attached to, and that was never part of God's plan. And now when the promise is coming, because the promise is coming because God's still on the throne and he can't help but be integrous to his own promises. When the promise is coming, there's now an anchor, a weight attached to that promise because, come on now, because you try to work that out on your own. We lost the ability to wait, guys. We lost the ability to hear God and say, hmm, I know this is coming and I know this is his plan, so I gotta just figure out how to make it happen. And God's saying, wait a second. You trusted me all the way till this point. Abraham, 25 years. I don't know about you, but 25 years is a long time to wait for a promise to come true. Hebrews tell us that some of the people receiving promises never got to see him even in this lifetime, but they still came through because God is still God. Could you hold out hope on a promise that took 20 years, 25? Could you trust God in that season, in that time? That's not the message, though, so let's move on. Um, what's the most important thing in your life? Mm. So Abraham, having not been able to receive the promise in the timing that he wanted to, makes another critical mistake, and Ishmael's born, and some of you know the story. You can look it up. I'm not making it up. Things go crazy, and he basically he hits rock bottom. Can I just say, some of you have felt like maybe you've hit rock bottom. You've tried to manhandle the promises of God or the destiny that God's put in your life, and you feel like you hit rock bottom. Can I just throw you a bone? Sometimes God lets us hit rock bottom just so we can discover that he's the rock. Sometimes he lets us hit rock bottom just so we can go, okay, you're the rock. You're the solid ground. You're the one I can trust. And I've been trying to build all this other stuff, and I had to hit the bottom just so I could trust you again that's a free one. Isaac's born, a miracle at age 100. I don't know about you. Age 100 would be a miracle, and I don't know if I'd be as happy as Abraham is. I'm looking at age 40 going, no, thank you. Hard pass on any more miracles, God. So Isaac's born, a miracle, age 100. And if you're looking through the story, like if you look back at Genesis 21 and then you move to Genesis 22, you see that uh, all this stuff happens in Genesis 21. This crazy story happens. There's like a well and Abraham has now made it to the promised land. And, and what's more important than anything else in this land is access to, to potable water because you have crops and you have animals. And so Abraham digs this well and, and uh, God's favors with them and they're thriving. Abraham goes on a journey. When he comes back, the neighbors have assumed his property, including the well. So there's this big tension. It'd be like this. It'd be like if you went on vacation for a couple weeks and you have this big, beautiful backyard and there's a garden and food and all the things you've been working for are out there. And when you come home, there's a fence right outside your back door. 
And they've cut off your backyard and just kind of claimed it. And you come home and you walk outside and you're like, where'd this fence come from? That's all my stuff over there on that side. And they're like, hi, neighbors. And you're like, okay, first let me load my gun. All <laughs> right. Hi, neighbor. What's going on? Right. I don't know how you interact. I'm just saying that's what Abraham had to deal with. And, uh, and there's this incredible tension that he has to work through and he resolves it and he's gracious and he's compassionate. He's got a kid now and it's kind of chilled him out. And uh, basically it ends with this story of he just lived there for a long time. And then in chapter 22, it says after a while. So we don't know exactly the time frame. Most historians um, that give the time frame between Isaac's birth and this story uh, at, the, at the low end of the scale, 15 years. At the high end, as high as 30 years to 35 years. Most agree Isaac's probably a teenager. He's somewhere between 15 to 19 when this story takes place. And it's been 15 to 19 good years. Basically, the scripture's silent. Uh, God hasn't really been speaking or doing anything in his life in this season. He's just been raising Isaac. And Isaac means laughter. And so the, 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 the life of uh, Abraham and Sarah has been marked by this joy and this laughter at having a kid at 100 years old. Um, I would laugh and cry. Um, and, so, and so that happens. And we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 22. And it says, some time later, God tested Abraham. Let's just stop right there for a second. God tested Abraham. I'm like, why, God, why would God test someone? Let me just give you a free thing um, for, for that. And here's the reality. God uses tests to strengthen our faith. And the enemy uses temptation to destroy us. And so that's the difference. If you're wondering, why would God test Abraham? That's the, in a short version, God allows us to be tested to strengthen us. Not because God doesn't know what's inside of us, because we need to know what's inside of us. That's the whole thing. All right, so he says to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Now listen, when you hear the voice of God, the best answer you could possibly do is here I am. I heard one pastor say, too often God says our name and we say, am I here? Like we get that mixed up. Like we're not sure what we're doing. If God's talking to us, we don't know how to hear his voice and we haven't recognized it. And so God's speaking and calling our name and we're like, I don't know. But Abraham hears the voice of God in his life and he responds, hey, that's me. I'm here, here I am, he replied. Verse two, then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, there's no burning bush here. There's no pillar of fire. I'm not sure what to make of this verse. Because I tell you, when I hear that verse, I go, whoa, yesterday was Cinco de Mayo, too many tacos. I'm crazy, because there's just no way. And I love the picture of God's conversation skills. And, and, and I love that Moses kind of captured this language because this is so powerful. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Think about that. He could have just said, take your son. We know who that is, right? He could have said your only son. That would have been good. He could have said Isaac. That would have been good. Whom you love. Are you kidding me? That's like a, that's like a thumb into the ribs and a twist a little bit, right? That's like take your son, your only son, Isaac. You know the one you love, right? Can you imagine just the rolling weight of that for Abraham to hear that? Take your son. Your only. Here's what happened to me. I was reading this over and over this week, and I couldn't get away from this thought. Take your insert blank your only, insert blank, that you love, 
and sacrifice it. For Abraham, it was Isaac, but for me, it's not Isaac, but what's it, what's it for you? How would you answer that question? Take your insert blank, your only insert in that blank that you love and sacrifice it. And now you can feel the tension. Take your whatever it is, your only one that you love and sacrifice it. Can we talk about something? I know I keep pushing, but I told you you're gonna be uncomfortable today because I was uncomfortable, so that's what happens. What happens when you get the thing you always dreamed of? Some of you are like, I don't know. I never got anything. Feel it as if you had. <laughs> what happens when you get the thing you only dreamed of? Here's my experience. We trust God a lot, and then the thing happens, and then it shifts. Here's the thing. We trust God a lot for the job. God, I need the job. Solve this. I need this tension, this job. I need the job. Then you get the job, and now the job becomes the main thing. God, I really need to get the girl. I really need to get the guy. I need to land the person. I've been trusting you forever. Please help me find the girl. Please help me find the guy. And then you find the girl or you find the guy. And then God goes, whoop, down to the bottom of the list. And the girl or the guy's up on the top of the list. You've been praying for kids. God, I just start now praying for the kids that we don't have, that we're gonna have. And maybe it was difficult like it was for Abraham. And then the kids come. Come on, families. And suddenly the kids are your whole world. Making sure they have everything they need feels like the most important thing you could do with your life. And they go whoop over the top of God in your life. Just saying, take your pick of your only thing that you love. Can I just be really real with you? My kids were in first service, but my son was sitting right here. So you know what the most danger I'm ever in of having an idol in my life is sitting right in front of me at that point? That's the biggest danger I have of having an idol in my life. Doesn't mean God doesn't want me to love my kids. Doesn't mean God doesn't want me to care for my kids. But he certainly does not want them first. Whew. Told you it was going to get uncomfortable in here a little bit. Abe dreamed of having a kid. 25 years of waiting. Age 100, his dream comes true. He's still healthy enough to play with his kid. And there's 17, 18, 19 years, probably about 17 years of just joy and raising that baby and laughing and being together. And all of a sudden he hears, Abraham, take the thing you love, your baby. Now, I put this together for service. Isaac's probably a teenager at this point. Maybe this was an easier conversation than I thought up front. <laughs> Parents of teenagers, I'm just saying. <laughs> I might have oversold it because I don't have teenagers yet, but I've helped raise some teenagers as a youth pastor before. Maybe God calling for your teenager would be an easier conversation. I'm just saying. Do with that what you will. <laughs> but here's the thing. God did not want Isaac's life. This was always gonna be about Abraham's heart. He didn't want Isaac's life. It was always gonna be about Abraham's heart. So God says, take it. Take the thing you love. Give it back to me. Trust me. Verse three. Early in the next morning. Look at someone and say, early. Oh, that was so weak. But you're second service, so you don't believe in early. 
<laughs> Look at someone next to you. Let's try again. Say early. early. There you are. There you are. That's okay. First service didn't do great on that either. I was surprised. Early in the next morning, it says Abraham got up. Now listen, I, before I get any further than that, you're going to see throughout Abraham's story, he did a lot of things early in the morning. And I think here's the point. He heard from God and then he did it. Now, this is hilarious because I just spent a lot of time saying we have a hard time waiting anymore. Here's the trap. We wait, and then it's God's timing, and we're paralyzed because we've been waiting, and now we got comfortable in the waiting. And now God says, okay, give up that thing. Say yes to that job. Put your name in. Take that step. Call that person back. Ask for forgiveness. Give forgiveness. Whatever it is. And we're like, yeah, I know that's the thing, God, but today's not going to be the day. And so we delay. And we delay and we're like, oh, we're comfortable in this moment of delay. But Abraham did not do that. It says early in the morning, God said, I need this. And Abraham said, all right. First thing in the morning, he gets up and he starts moving towards the promise of God. And I'm just gonna be candid with you. Sometimes there's just tremendous tension in us when we know the thing that God's called us to do. But it means we have to start the process of letting go of something else to get there. And then we delay. And the enemy of our souls, if he can't make us bad, but he can just make us slow and impatient and, just, and, 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 and get us to delay. And then eventually we begin to diffuse the energy for the thing. And we begin talking ourselves out of it, saying, God would never ask that of me. God doesn't want that. And we start having that inner dialogue that starts doubting God. And the thing we've been praying for, dreaming of, is in our grasp. And God's like, start moving towards that. And we're like, mm, it's too much to risk now. Abraham gets up early in the morning, saddles his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he sent out for the place God had told him about. Sometimes it's just a question of don't delay. I remember as I was heading off to Bible college, I was 17 years old, probably about the age of Isaac. And I was driving up to Bible college and I've shared this story before, but I was in a pretty horrific car accident. A big rig just changed lanes and ran over the front of my car and spun me into the oleander bushes and my car's like up in the air. And I was okay, praise the Lord, but all my stuff was wrecked. My computer was wrecked. And back then, even just having a computer was a big deal because I'm old. And so, so all my clothes were all, this I mean, it was just a mess. And I remember having this conversation with my parents where they're like, hey, you're, you know, you're only 17. You got forever to do this stuff. You want to just, delay. You want to just wait a year and we can, you know, you have a good job and working at Safeway and you could just, you could just go that lane for another. And I remember this just as, as powerful as I have ever heard from the Lord was just don't wait because you'll never move forward into my promise. If you do, don't wait. Sometimes the enemy's trap is to just get us to wait when it's time. So God sends him to the place that he called him to go. And there's this specific mountain, Mount Moriah. And if I had time, I would unpackage. There's so much cool history here. I've actually been to this location. You've seen it on a map because currently there's a big dome of the rock on this location because it's where the temple ended up. Abraham doesn't know that that's where he's going. God knows that this is a specific place that he's sending him. As a matter of fact, this is just fun and cool, amazing history stuff. The rock that Isaac lays on, it's eventually the rock they're gonna set the altar on. Come on, the Ark of the Covenant's gonna sit there and the temple's gonna be there and the sacrifices are gonna happen there and the promises of God are gonna happen there. But Abraham doesn't know any of that. He's just going where God called him to go. Pretty cool stuff. 
He's on his way to this place where God told him about, and he's trusting God. Then it says on the third day, and I'm just going to tell you that if you don't see the foreshadowing of Jesus in this story, then you don't know the story of Jesus. So let me help you. There's three days of pretty hard travel and sad times because he's heard from the Lord he's going to give up his son. And for three days, in his mind, his son is dead. Just saying. Now, I don't know about you. I've been on a few walks with my son. I've never been on a three-day hike because I don't camp. I'm from the city. I pay a lot of money to live indoors, and so my vacation isn't to pretend like I can't live indoors. <laughs> I don't understand camping at all. Somebody has to explain it to me. But for three days, they're hiking and camping. He's got a 17-year-old-ish boy with him. I don't know if you know anything about 17-year-old boys. If you haven't spent time with a 17-year-old boy in a while, you should do that because it will just recalibrate you to needing to pray for hope for the world. Um, but we have amazing <laughs> potential in 17-year-old boys. They have strength and not much wisdom, but passion and, and faith. And they believe they can just accomplish and do anything. 17-year-old boys actually are amazing and a nightmare. Don't date them. Um, but short of that, <laughs> if you're listening online, I was looking at a row of young ladies there. Um, but lost it. 17-year-old boy, they're hiking, they're camping, they're, they're moving out. It's a three-day journey. And he believes his son, his only son, come on now, is dead. They get to the place in the distance and he says to his servants, you stay here with the donkeys while I and the boy go over there. Listen to this. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. We will, what? I thought he was going to make a sacrifice. I thought God called him to a sacrifice. How did we get to worship? He says, you stay here, me and the lad, that's King James Version, we will go off yonder and we will worship. I wonder sometimes if we don't know when we're worshiping and when we're sacrificing, and we don't know that our sacrifice is worship and our worship is sacrifice, if we don't know because words matter that we tie in an idea and we believe when we lay something down before the Lord, we made an amazing sacrifice and God's like, I thought that was an act of worship. I thought that was just you giving me back what I already gave to you because you trust me. And we're proud of our sacrifice. And God's like, ah, yes, but this is worship. This is what worship looks like. Abraham understands. He's like, hey, we're going up in the mountain and it's gonna cost me the most, the thing I love, the only thing. And that's not sacrifice, that's worship. That's what worship looks like. Worship looks like I completely trust you. But I digress. Verse six. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac. He's like, hey, you're young. You carry the heavy stuff. And he himself carried the fire and the knife and the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, uh, father, yes, my son, uh, the fire and the wood are here, but you forgot something. I know you're probably 117 or so right now. And so you might have these kind of moments where you forget things, but we've been on a three-day hike to get here, and now we're climbing the hill. So let's not get to the top of the hill, Dad, and recognize we forgot the thing we came to do. We forgot the sacrifice. And Abraham answers, uh, God himself is going to provide that lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached that place, God had told them about. 
the place where the rock is, the place where the temple's going to be, the place where uh, the, the true lamb is going to rip apart the veil so that we can have access to the Holy of Holies. They are standing on what is eventually going to be the Holy of Holies. It's crazy. For the burnt offering, my son, the two of them went on together. Oh, they reached the place. Um, Abraham built an altar and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Let's talk about that for just a second. Now, I've been around a lot of 17-year-old boys, 15 or so years in youth ministry. I've been around a lot of teenage boys. I'm just going to tell you, just getting them to sit still for two minutes is amazing. Trying to tie one up at 117 years old, this is not happening unless Isaac's on board. Something has happened in Isaac's heart. From we were walking up going, so where's the thing? There's no lamb. I don't hear any bleeding of a sheep. We're going up here to, I've carried the wood. I've stacked it on this rock. Now what, dad? You want me to lay down? You're gonna tie me up? The amount of faith in Isaac right here is incredible. And that's important. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then the next verse says that Abraham took the knife, reached out his hand, and took the knife to slay his own son. He reached out his hand, took the knife. Now listen, I don't know about you. I'm visual. So I'm along with the story so far. I don't, I'm like, I don't know if I could say yes to any of these things. Like Abraham, impressive, but okay. But there's a moment of no return. And this is it. Up until this point, I don't know what's going on in your mind, but you gotta be thinking, all right, God, it looks like I'm gonna have to make sacrifice, but I'm not actually gonna have to make sacrifice, am I? It looks like this is gonna cost me everything that I love, but it's probably not, right? That's kind of how you work. It's, it is, you know, you're just, this is a test, right? And I'm gonna pass. But he's at now do or die moment. Knife in his hand. Son on the altar. Wood, fires over here, ready to do the thing that would be unthinkable for this father's heart. And the scripture says, he took the knife and he was ready to slay his son. Could you get that far into trusting God? It's a moment of truth. You'll remember that God never wanted Abraham's stuff or his son. It was always about Abraham's heart. And this is the moment where his heart's really tested. Do you trust me this much? Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. And I love this. Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replies. Now listen, when God calls you twice, stop whatever you're doing. Just stop. Don't move a muscle and listen. When God calls you twice, you Pay attention. Some of you are like, ah, I think I heard God, I'm not sure. And then this other thing happened. And I was pretty sure it was God, but uh, uh, when God called you twice, stop. Just pause whatever it is you're doing and listen. And I love the passion. The angel of the Lord's like, because to get Abraham moving towards this, it was only one Abraham. It was Abraham, here I am, Lord. But to put the brakes on, he's like, Abraham, Abraham. Put the brakes on. Here I am, he replied. Not am I here. You ever had God call you twice? 
I know that feeling. Dang it. Dang it. That's usually what happens in me. I know, God, I know. But come on. Come on. God's called you twice. Verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy. That's awesome. He said, don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Think about Isaac's viewpoint of this. He is tied up looking up at his dad with a knife. That's cray cray. Like that just mind blown. I was pressing through this and I was processing because I'm asking hard questions because I'm reading and I'm talking to God. I'm, I'm asking questions about myself. Like, could I trust God this much? I ain't there yet. I'm trying. I want to be the guy that learns without having to get to this point. Let's just keep God on the top of the list the whole way through so he doesn't have to like press on anything. I want to be that guy. But I don't know. That's hard. Then I started thinking about this. I'm like, doesn't God already know Abraham's heart? Like he already knows how this story is going to end. So why go through the rigmarole? God's not learning any new information. He's got all the information. A stone cold. I'm like, no, this wasn't for God's benefit. Sometimes God lets us walk through tests, not because he needs to know something about us, but we need to know something about us. We need to know what sits on the top of our heart. We need to know where our treasure really is. We need to have a recalibration moment that the God we trusted in one season might not be the God we trust the same way in this season. We need to know that. God didn't need to know that. Then I started thinking about Isaac. What did Isaac learn in this? He learned some crazy things. Dad really loves me, but he really loves God. That or he's really crazy. <laughs> but he learned something. He learned that his dad loved God so much, trusted God so much that he believed that no matter what, God would take care of him. You know, what's amazing is before this, God is just the God of Abraham, but we know that God is always known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to become the God of Isaac pretty quick after this story. Isaac's going to be like, thank you, God, you and me. He's going to learn something, and he's going to pass that on to his sons. And Jacob is going to be the next torchbearer of that legacy. And it's going to pass on and pass on from generation to generation to us that you can trust God all the way to the point where the only thing that could possibly save you is the supernatural power and hand of God and you can still trust God. This is important information for Isaac to pick up. So Isaac's learning, Abraham's learning, God already knows. Verse 13, and I won't spend too much time here, I just like saying the word thicket. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its own horns and he went over there and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And to this day, it's on the mountain of the Lord. It will be provided. To this day, we believe that. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. That's so cool. 
when you're the biggest dog, you can't swear by anything else. You can't say like, I swear on my mother's grave or I swear on this Bible. Like God doesn't have anything bigger than him to swear on. So he's like, just so you know, I swear by myself. It's pretty hilarious. If we said something like that, it would be the most audacious thing to say. But for God, it's just normal. Like I swear by myself declares the Lord that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I'll surely bless you. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars and the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities and their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth, meaning even including this one, will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Can you obey without all the details? This would have been a much easier story if God would have said, I want you to take your son up the, uh, up the mountainside and don't worry, I got a plan. None of that was in place. But can you obey without all the details? Because that is a challenging, challenging thing. I wonder what was in Abraham's head. And then I read Hebrews and the author of Hebrews gives us insight into Abraham's mindset. And he says this, he says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and his only son, just in case you didn't realize. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. But look at verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. I thought, oh, that's really nice. And then I put together, I was like, wait a second. Abraham didn't have a picture of Jesus. We have Jesus, right? So we can go, yeah, we've seen God raises the dead sometimes, right? He didn't know about, you know, uh, Elijah and the widow and laying on her, you know, son, and he came back. Like, he had no resurrection stories up until this point, right? And so there's no evidence that God works that way sometimes. But Abraham reasoned that because he had learned that God keeps his promises, that if God had made a promise, he'd find a way to keep his promise no matter what God asked of him to lay down along the way. He didn't need, oh man, that's hard. He didn't need the thing he loved that God gave him in order to receive God's promise. Because if God knew he needed it, God would make sure he had it. And God never wanted his stuff anyways. It was always about what sits on the top of your heart. And so he was able to do that. So it's heroic. He's seeing what everyone else sees, but doing what nobody else does. And Abe looks back at his past and says, yeah, man, it's been a crazy ride. 25 years plus 17 or 20 years, maybe 45 years now following Jesus, following God, trusting God. And I've seen him do some pretty amazing things. There have been little small battles along the way and some have been larger and some have been smaller, but here's the idea is that when God invites you to trust him with the big stuff, don't lose sight of what he's done all along. He says, okay, I've seen you take my barren wife and make a baby happen at age 100. I've seen you spare a city. I've seen you wipe a city out. I've seen you do miracle after miracle. Spare me, give me a land. I've seen you be faithful. And because I've seen who you are, God, and I know your character, I trust you. Even though it may cost me the thing I love. Because you're the thing I love the most. You're the thing I love the most. And I trust you. So let me ask you again, what's the most important thing in your life? What's the most? 
if there's something greater, a bigger dream that you haven't been willing to pursue because if you did, it might cost you something right now? Have you been trying to make a promise of God happen in your timing and not trusting him? Because you might pull it off, but it's gonna be a imitation, a pale shadow, a facsimile of God's actual promise for your life. Is God calling you to a place of movement right now? Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. The season of waiting is over and it's go time. And you're like, ah, I can't do it right now because I got some security over here and I got a relationship that might be at risk and I can't leave that job. I can't leave this thing. I'll be honest. I'd be really cool, but it's baseball season and I got like four practices a week, God. What's most important? What sits on the throne? What's first? Just saying. I read this over and over again, just trying to ask myself, do I have this much faith, God? Do I have this much faith? Would I lay down the thing I love in faith, believing that if you took it, you could raise it from the dead or give me something better, that you were trustworthy? The answer is, I hope so. And I'm trying and I'm moving closer towards Jesus, but I don't know. Where are you? We keep singing, I surrender today. Mm. Even just trusting God enough to say I surrender doesn't feel real good right now. But I know it's true. And I can trust him. And you can trust him. Would you stand with me? (laughs) Abraham doesn't have a track record of resurrection to look back on, but he believes God can do anything. And he believes in the character of God. He believes that God will give him something greater if he gives up what honestly he can't hold on to anyways. Jim Elliott, the great missionary from the movie The End of the Spear, has this quote that I think is so huge, that he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The promises and the destiny of God you cannot lose. And I'm just wondering if our church family got a hold of this idea that the thing we love the most was God. Got a hold of this idea that the thing that we cared for, the thing that we would lay anything else down for is the destiny that God had for us. And pursuing that, if that wouldn't break open some things for us, if it wouldn't break the lid off some of the places where we've said no to God, if it wouldn't break the lid off of some of the frustration and ways that we've tried to circumvent God's timing, and if that wouldn't in turn bring opportunity for healing and restoration in our homes, in our neighborhood could be actually be changed when people saw us behaving that way. It would be contagious. And the simple truth is God was always looking for a heart that just said, I'm in. So I don't know. I think I can say that. And if you think you can say that too, we're going to just lift our voice and we're going to close and we're going to declare this simple truth that we trust him and we want to know him more. And I want to invite you, if there's a thing, 
and it's just in you right now, and God's surfacing that, the power of the Holy Spirit is surfacing, that this is something you might have to trust him with, something you may have to lay down. I just want to invite you as we sing this to just have a conversation with God, an honest moment of transparency to say, God, I have elevated this other thing, this relationship, this child, this job, this 401k, I don't know what it is, this other thing to a place where it's too high. And so I surrender it. Would you just lift your voice?